Good morning. This is Bo Matthews, and welcome to Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. Let's Talk is a one-hour program devoted to issues and developments that are of importance to Sedalia and the surrounding communities. By committing an entire hour to a subject and many times having experts join us in studio, we will be able to delve deeper into the topic of the week and provide you with a fuller understanding of what is happening in our community. This morning's show was pre-recorded. Welcome to Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. I'm Bo Matthews with Ron Toner and John Meehan, and we have Kyle Corey Yegi with us today. Thank you, Bo. We do want to welcome Kyle here today. We have a lot to talk about regarding retrieving freedom, how it got here, the uh, the program itself, what it consists of, who it benefits, how we can help the process just uh, many, many things. So welcome, Kyle, and uh, just take a couple of minutes to uh, inform our audience a little bit about your history, education, work history. How'd you get here? Absolutely. Well, first off, thank you guys for the opportunity to be able to talk with you this morning. My name's Kyle. Uh, it's easier to say Kyle than uh, stumble through the last name. So I, I was raised in Wisconsin. If you hear some of the hard accents, uh, that's where I was raised. At. From there, I went to Iowa State University, and my focus there was in animal science. You know, as a undergraduate, thinking about doing the, the veteran medicine path for the whole pathway there. Now, during that process, I also had the opportunity to work within a clinical research setting. So I was working and finding a lot of treatments for diseases that are found in humans that are also found in cat and dog models. Now, through that process, I would volunteer my time through a lot of different opportunities. Uh, some of it was out in South and Central America. Some of it was here in the United States. But the most influential for me was the Special Olympics of Iowa, being a snack booth attendant or a referee, seeing the, the joy and the reward on those individuals just through my volunteerism made me realize, you know, rather than going the research pathway, let's find a way where I can crisscross a lot of my passions. And that's what led me to the service dog industry. At that time, packed up my vehicle, drove all the way across the country, and I worked for the largest mobility assistance dog organization for about four years. And through that process, I went into this industry with without any dog training experience outside of personal pet dogs. So they kind of trained me as I was going through that process. And uh, I realized that I'm a Midwestern through and through. So I had the very fortunate opportunity to transition and pivot back to this organization in 2017. I worked my way through a variety of different roles. Within the nonprofit industry, we all wear a lot of different hats. I had the opportunity and the blessing to relocate myself and my wife down here to the Sedalia community back in 2019 when we built our national headquarters, which I'm really excited to talk about as we get into this. So as we get into further details here, Kyle, let's talk about the organizational history of Retrieving Freedom, how it came about originally, and then how it came to Sedalia, Missouri. Absolutely. So our organization was founded in 2011. At that time, we had two co-founders. They were involved in the professional dog training experiences. So you think of like field trial, hunt tests. And they decided to build this organization to be able to help other individuals uh, throughout the country. Now, at that time, we had two facilities, one up in Waverly, Iowa, and one in Mississippi. Through the process of our organizational growth, our organization decided that we were going to be building our national headquarters right here in Sedalia. 
So what we did is we, we relocated the operations from the Mississippi facility here to Sedalia. We built a gorgeous facility on 22 acres that was generously donated by the Hayden family on the north side of town here. And we still have our facility up in Waverly, Iowa, to be able to increase our impact on a, a wide scale on both those states as well as nationwide. Well, I know as I've researched the organization, Kyle, uh, it, it looks like your work is primarily or to benefit two particular areas. One, our veterans, and two individuals, um, help me. Children with autism. Thank you, children with autism. So we can talk about how those folks are impacted by this and how much of a benefit this is, but maybe even before we do that, walk us through a typical situation. Uh, uh, Let's take a particular dog and what what happens. Absolutely. So what I like to do first off is really hit on our mission statement. So our mission statement is to change lives through the training and placement of service dogs for veterans with disabilities and children with autism. Now we break out our veterans with disabilities into two subcategories. We're thinking of physical mobility, so you think of loss of limb, individuals who use a variety of different mobility assisted devices. And then what we classify as psychiatric mobility or what people refer to as PTSD dogs. Now on our autism side we see a lot of that physical mobility as well as some of that psychiatric benefits that come with some of the commands that we train to mitigate their disabilities. So that is our mission statement, and it's kind of unique because if you look at the specific wording, it says change lives through the training and placement. So we have our ultimate end goal, but we've also been able to identify how we can have an impact on our statewide or local community through the process of training those dogs, which I'll get into. So a typical dog's pathway through our program, they start their training at eight weeks of age. Our organization uses purpose-bred dogs. Um, There's a lot of great organizations out there that use rescue dogs. I have a dichotomy in my life because I have a rescued greyhound at home, and I love that dog. But I understand it's not going to be the best-suited dog to mitigate an individual's disability. We're working with two very vulnerable populations, and I need to be able to track the complete medical, environmental, and temperamental background of every one of our dogs because the last thing I want to do is place a dog and then an unforeseen situation happens and they bite a child. So I need to be able to make sure I mitigate that as much as possible on the front end. So we have a mixture of dogs that are bred in-house for the specific purpose of our program. We also have partnerships with reputable breeders all across the country. Our organization primarily uses two breeds and then a cross between them. So Labrador Retrievers and Golden Retrievers. Not because we think they're the best breed. They're just what works best for our program. So as I go through this, kind of put yourself in the mindset of the dog because you'll see that they rotate through so many different handlers throughout their journey before they meet their final end match. Now, I need a dog that's going to be able to be passed off or hand off the leash and work just as responsive with that new individual as they do with an individual that's raised them from eight weeks to a year. Um, Some breeds kind of imprint very heavily on one individual, which is great. But I can't have a a veteran or a family working with our dogs and then the dogs focusing on our trainers and not the individual at the end of the leash. Those are the reasons, those are the breeds we utilize and that's the source of where we get our dogs. So they start their training at eight weeks, from eight weeks to about a year or maybe 10 months of that dog's age, they are in what we call our stage one. These are dogs that are raised by local volunteers, local fosters, and their very important responsibility is 
basic obedience, housebreaking, crate training, and then public socialization is one of the big keys. So get these dogs out in a church, a work environment, restaurants, grocery stores, so that nothing is novel to them in their future life, working life, I should say. Now, they come on a monthly basis or bi-monthly basis to our facility and work with our trainers or meet us out in public and go through a public access test or public exposure test. This way, I'm not just giving a family a puppy and saying, hey, good luck, turn it back to me in a year, and then we'll pick it up from there. So we are able to track that dog and its behavior, its temperament, its energy level, and give these individuals the resources they need so that they are supported in this journey. Now, our fosters have the biggest hearts because they are raising this dog for a year and then they have to give it up. And it is it gives me goosebumps uh, just thinking about it because I could always give it lip service until the opportunity where my wife and I fostered two dogs. And it is heartbreaking. I can't sugarcoat that. But the thing that masks all of our selfish or personal desires is being able to see the end result. Seeing this dog meaning so much more to that individual than it ever did to us as a pet dog as we were raising it. That is stage one, from eight weeks to about a year. Tell us, how, how many foster parents of those dogs do we have here now? Absolutely. In the Sedalia community, we have about 20 that are doing the full-time fosters. Okay. And then we have about an additional 20 to 25 who do weekend fosters for our stage three dogs, which I'll get into. But we are always looking for more fosters. So if anyone is ever interested in that, I'll definitely do a shameless plug later on about ways that you can get involved. Now, Stage two of our dogs. So there's a couple of different ways our industry approaches a dog's pathway through its journey. And it can go from straight through a foster into advanced training. But from the dog's perspective, there is a very large transitionary stress level that comes from leaving that home environment Mm -hmm. and then entering a kennel. So we found that we could benefit our dogs and our state and local communities by doing what I call like an abridged training. So it's like the next step up in intensity for their training. And this is where we incorporate correctional facilities across the country. This is where we incorporate major universities across the country. And this is where we also incorporate local elementary schools. Each one has a specific focus to that dog and its future working role, and each one has a specific focus to the individuals it's working with. So our correctional facilities, if you think about the environment of a prison, the whole purpose is to remove any sense of intimacy, of contact, as a part of their punishment. Now, what we can do is after we've screened individuals to ensure the safety of our dogs, we can incorporate a small level of that intimacy, that empathy back into these individuals. So after years and years of taking that led them into that Department of Corrections, they're finally having the opportunity to give back. Now, a majority of the individuals we work with are incarcerated veterans. So they get this spirit de corps, if you will, where they are finally helping out one of their their fellow brothers or sisters in arms. Now, I never thought in my life, and our trainers never thought in their life as well, that they get excited every time they get to go and say, I'm going to prison this week. 
And the reason being is you just see how much this program means to these individuals. It's giving them these vocational opportunities so that when they do re-enter society, they have a, an employable skill, whether it is dog training, whether it's grooming, they, they have that experience that we can be able to help facilitate them. Now, our dogs in the correctional facility programs, they soak up that type of environment. Everything is so structured and here's your schedule for when you eat, when you go to your vocational rehab, when you have to go to the doctor's appointments. And that structure benefits our dog for when they hit advanced training. Now, we've started collecting data on some of our correctional facilities to really measure the impact. And there is a prison program that we have down in Pearl, Mississippi, and the state recidivism rate down in Mississippi is 40%. 40% of the guys that re-enter society and back up in Department of Corrections. Since 2017-18 timeframe, we've had 262 individuals go through that program and two individuals re-entered DOC. So we are drastically reducing the recidivism rates, and that has as a benefit not only to those individuals, but the state and nationwide communities. I'm guessing that that particular benefit was not necessarily one that you were expecting. Absolutely not. So we always knew the benefit on the dog side. And you always got to see the benefit anecdotally on the people side. But anecdotal is just Greek for unpublished. So I was trying to figure out how can I be able to fully articulate the impact that we're having so that when our mission statement says changing lives through the training and placement, what does that mean? And this is a way that we've been able to collect data and have something a little bit more objective than subjective. Now, that was one of our programs. Our other programs, when I mentioned our college programs across the country, we have a partnership with the University of Missouri and their ROTC cadets. These are individuals who are learning about veteran affairs and initiatives and how they can help a fellow veteran in arms throughout their undergraduate. We have a partnership with Iowa State University. It is my alumni, so I'm a, a, a little biased on this one, but this is where animal science students get to learn and have hands-on application when it comes to dog learning theory, when it comes to training, when it comes to behavior. We also have a partnership with a small parochial college up in Waverly, Iowa called Warburg. And we work with their leadership department and their social work department. So individuals who are gonna go into that social work field can find if a service dog or even any other type of animal assisted therapies could benefit their clientele base. And then on the leadership side, handling dogs teaches you a lot about nonverbal communication. So dogs don't necessarily understand English, but they are really good at reading your body language. So having that type of nonverbal communication as part of their curriculum has shown a great benefit to these individuals. We're visiting with Kyle with Retrieving Freedom on Let's Talk. At this point, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back in a few minutes with our second segment of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. A reminder that Let's Talk can be heard Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on News Talk 1050 KSIS. The show can also be heard on the KSIS radio app and also at KSISradio.com. You can contact us with any comments, questions, concerns, and ideas.
back for our second segment of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. I'm Bo Matthews with Ron Toner and John Meehan. We're visiting with Kyle with Retrieving Freedom. And Kyle, you have gone through the first process, the first stage. What is the second stage that you were talking about with these animals? Absolutely. So we've hit on our correctional facility programs. We hit on our college programs. The last one I'd like to highlight is our elementary school programs. This is where we incorporate some of our service dogs and training into elementary school classrooms as a benefit or a complement to their curriculum. Teaching these young youth about disability awareness, teaching them about interpersonal skills, as well as using that dog as a passive and active reward-based system. So some of it could be like a reading program. Let's take this child and let's hang out on the beanbag over here and let's read to the dog. The dog is a non-judgmental companion. So they're not going to laugh if you mess up a word or stumble through a sentence. They're just happy that you're there reading with them. So we can promote reading proficiencies. And this is just one small example. Um, So we have a partnership here in Sedalia with our Sacred Heart program. And there's a few other programs that we have established up in Iowa. Now, in our dog's perspective, if I have a dog that is going down that autism pathway and that that family is looking to incorporate that dog into that child's school curriculum, that's an environment I can't replicate out at our training facility. A classroom setting with a whole bunch of kids and all those different stimuli, both sights, sounds, smells. So being able to benefit that dog and promote its future working responsibilities is it's irreplaceable in our program. So that stage two program usually lasts from about the, a year or 10 months of that dog's age up to that dog's age of about a year and a half or just shy of that. Now at about a year and a half is when we enter that dog into stage three and this is where our magic happens. So at this point, we do a very thorough medical evaluation. So we evaluate the dog's hips, heart, eyes, elbows to make sure that they are medically sound to be able to perform these disability mitigating commands. The last thing that I want to do is place a dog then have to retire it in two years because it had poor hips. We also do a very thorough behavioral and temperamental evaluation. So put these dogs in a bunch of novel stimuli to see what is their response and reaction so that do they have a very strong prey drive. So if they see a squirrel, they're going to be able to dart after it. That's great for a pet dog, but if you think about a veteran who's using a wheelchair, that's a hazard. Does this dog have a very strong ball drive? Same situation. If they pull over an individual, that's a hazard in our books. At that point, we continue all of the dogs down and make sure that they are learning the same cadence of commands. But then we let the dogs make the decision for themselves about what pathway they're going to follow. We really evaluate their unique personalities, their strengths, their weaknesses, their abilities. And that makes them decide, is this dog better suited for an autism family or is this dog better suited for a veteran? And at that point, we start putting some specific commands on them that fall within those two categories. And then we rotate them through all the individuals who are accepted onto our wait list. So our program does not do first come, first serve. So it's not here's dog one and here's client one and boom, they're a great match and go out into the world. I call it like our online dating profiles where we're looking at this individual's daily lifestyle, their likes, their activity levels. Do they go to work, school? And then I'm looking at our dog's strengths to be able to see, you know, does this dog fit that type of personality? And while we are having our individuals come through, we experiment and be able to see, okay, we're going to work with these three dogs. And I can see what worked great with dog A, B, and C to make sure that we're making the right match and not the fastest match. So at that point, they are still going through that process of a, a pretty standardized curriculum. But when they identify the individual that they're going to be placed with, 
then we start custom tailoring that individual dog's training program to fit the specific commands that individual is looking for to mitigate their disability. And then that all leads up into maybe a home visit. So take this dog home with you for the weekend and then come back and let's see if there's anything that we didn't foresee or if there's anything that we need to add. And that leads up into a placement. So I talked about the whole journey of our dogs and it's easier to start with the dogs and then incorporate our individuals. So an individual looking for a dog through our program starts out through our application process. It's pretty painless and it can go through, an individual can go through very quickly with their availability. It starts off with a written application and then we have a phone consultation and then we invite them to our facility for an in-person consultation so they can meet our team, see our gorgeous facilities and then interact with a few of our dogs in training. At that point, then they're accepted onto our wait list. Our wait list ranges from about a year to a year and a half, which is really good. It's definitely above standard uh, or industry standards or industry average right now. But through that process, it's an active wait list. So they don't just sit there for a year to a year and a half and then get a phone call to come in for training for an intensive two weeks. What we do is we work around that individual's personal and professional life. So maybe they come in on a once a month basis where I can start teaching some of the basic foundations and then lead up into that placement. Maybe as they get closer to when they identify the right dog, that cadence can increase. So maybe they're coming for maybe a two day training session each month. And that slowly leads up into that placement. It also builds great rapport between that individual and our, our staff. So we've seen a lot of great benefits on that way, that front. You know, Kyle, we might step in here to talk about just the various ways that these dogs can help veterans and help children with autism, by the way. We are visiting with Kyle from Retrieving Freedom. If you go out to their website, retrievingfreedom.com or .org, I'm sorry, it gives an excellent story of the organization, training, the people that it benefits. I mean, you can actually apply for for an animal online, but it is a very well put together website, and I would recommend that you uh, that you visit that. But Kyle, tell us just some examples. Of, I mean, obviously, we, the first thing that comes to mind is a, a PTSD veteran, but there are numerous types of ways that these dogs can assist. Absolutely. So let me break it down through those three categories. So we talked about our psychiatric mobility for our our veterans, our PTSD dogs. So some of the physical commands these dogs are trained to mitigate that disability. The first one is a positional command. It's where the dog orientates itself around that that handler's body. Now, it may not seem like a lot, but if hypothetically we were veterans that were checking out at, at Walmart and our daily anxiety or our triggers are, are stimulated or are they were uh, brought into an action because someone's pushing a shopping cart way too close to our backside, the dog can position itself between that veteran and the general public and allow that individual to reduce their overall daily anxiety, reduce the overall triggers. Same thing with people that are a little too close talkers when they come up to you. Being able to position the dog between the veteran and that individual allows them to continue to have that conversation, but at a healthy and respectful distance within that veteran's comfort zone. Some of the other commands that we train our our psychiatric mobility dogs are nightmare interruption and disruption. This can look like a variety of different ways, whether it's turning on the light, whether it's tugging off the comforters, whether it's providing deep pressure to wake that veteran up in a healthy manner. We also have a variety of anxiety grounding and disrupting commands. 
this is where if their daily triggers or anxiety are starting to build up, it's where the dog can be able to interrupt that behavior and have them focus on what's that into the leash rather than what's going on in the environment. This can look like a variety of different ways from nudging to maybe resting its head or coming up into the lap of that veteran to say, you know, hey, let's let's calm down or let's refocus our attention than what's on the environment right now. For our physical mobility for our veterans, we see everything from an, a dog pulling an individual in a wheelchair, a dog opening and closing doors, drawers, refrigerators, a dog picking up dropped items, a dog turning on and off lights, as I mentioned earlier, a dog hitting those push buttons that you see in most of the buildings. Now, most of our veterans are looking for a hybrid of both of those. So they're looking for some of those psychiatric mobility commands, as well as those physical mitigating commands. So the dogs can be able to be, we have the flexibility within our program to cross train the dogs to cover both needs. For our children with autism, we see very similar commands when I talk about the anxiety grounding and disrupting for our veterans. But with our children with autism, we see a lot more of the deep pressure therapy for those reduced anxiety moments or be able to reduce the anxiety in those moments. The other command that's kind of one of our main bread and butter for our autism commands is a passive anchoring or tethering. This is where the dog will wear a modified vest and uh, the child or the recipient wears a belt around their waist. Now, if that child displays any eloping or bolting behaviors, the dog is trained to feel that stimuli and then passively lay down or to work as that anchor. And what this allows is that parent or that caregiver to redirect the child in a healthy direction rather than that child bolting into traffic. So those are some of like the commands that we like to focus on that are specifically trained to mitigate the disability. The passive benefits, when you look at our kids with autism, that non-judgmental companion, that social bridge for our children and the general public, our children and the peers, you know, having the child be able to interact with maybe some of their, their classmates or someone out in public through that dog is fascinating. Most people, when they see a dog in public places, it's new to them. It sticks out. So they want to, they want to hear about it. And what we do is we teach the parents of that child to redirect all of that back through the dog to the child. So if they come up and they say, hey, I really love your dog. Can I say hi? The parents say, sorry, this is not my dog. This is my son or daughter's dog. You can ask them. And it sets up that healthy interaction between the child and the public. Now, one thing I've noticed, too, you will see the service dogs uh, w- with a veteran, uh, for example, and they're out and about in a store or whatever other location. And people will, like, oh, what a beautiful dog. And they want to just go up automatically and pet that dog is that a good or bad thing or is it something is the dog trained to where it 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 takes that in stride so whenever you see a dog in public with a vest on by default always ask before you pet so the reason why i say that is when a dog is in its working career so when it's placed with that individual it may be very inappropriate to pet that dog because you're distracting that dog from who it needs to be focused on the end handler But there are situations with what I mentioned with the facilitating those interactions with the public with the children with autism that the child may say, would you like to say hi to the dog and then allow them to pet just to help kind of some of those interactions. When you see some of our puppies in training in the local community, some of our fosters may use that as a great training opportunity. Because I know I get the opportunity to speak a lot of, to a lot of individuals and service dog etiquette is becoming more and more prominent in our communities. But... We still have people that like to do what I call the drive-by pet. 
It's where they know they're not supposed to say hi, they know they're not supposed to pet, but they'll kind of shyly look away, bend over, and give the dog a quick little pat on the head. Now, if I can train a dog early in its training career to be able to retain its controlled position, retain its attention to the handler in those types of situations, I'm going to be able to set up our clients for success when the general public does it to them. Now, the passive benefits that I've seen with our veterans is obviously there's that non-judgmental companion that we always talk about. You know, dogs, dogs are just happy to be there with you. So it doesn't matter if you're having a hard day or a good day. They're just really excited regardless. Some of these dogs are that motivating factor for, hey, let's get off the couch and let's go outside. Let's go play ball. Some of these dogs are the bridge to allow these veterans to go to their kids' ball games for the first time. Some of these dogs are the ability for these veterans to be able to sit at a restaurant as a family for the whole time. Now, these are, like I said, anecdotal. These are the passive benefits, not necessarily anything that we train the dog to be able to perform, but they're just that conduit as a passive benefit. And I, our organization takes a very holistic view at how we can service our clients. So we don't just focus on the, just the commands. We like to focus on the whole benefit. Now, the important thing that I love to stress, and our organization takes a lot of pride in, as I talked about our dogs coming through our program, I talked about our clients coming through the program. We do all that we do at no cost to our clients. And there is no required fundraising for any of our clients. So everything we do is at $0 to these veterans, $0 to these families. The last thing that I want to say to a family or to a veteran is that the reason they're not reaching this next level of independence is through a monetary obstacle. So everything that we do is based off the generosity of grants, donations, and fundraisers. And we offset that so that none of it goes to our clients. Let's take a break. We'll return in a couple of minutes with our third and final segment of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. A reminder that Let's Talk can be heard Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. on News Talk 1050 KSIS. The show can also be heard on the KSIS radio app and also at KSISradio.com. You can contact us with any comments, questions, concerns, and ideas. Our third and final segment of Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. I'm Bo Matthews with John Meehan and Ron Tolner. We have Kyle with Retrieving Freedom. And Ron, let's step into this uh, third segment and see what's going on. Thank you, Bo. Kyle, you've just done a, a wonderful job of talking about the process, the training process, the people that you're assisting. Tell us a little bit about when the dog's working life is complete, or if it is completed, when it is completed, what happens. And I'd also like an idea of uh, just the the numbers of individuals you've been able to assist, uh, the number of dogs that have gone through the program, how many do you typically work with at one time? Absolutely. So I talked about how we make those placements at no cost to our clients. After a placement is made, we call it a working relationship or a working partner for the dog's whole life. So while that dog is still an active service dog, we meet with those individuals on a very specific cadence. For the first year, it's about every month remotely checking in with a 90-day in-person follow-up, just to make sure everything is a well-oiled machine. After that, it's a yearly basis, or if something arises that we need to get in touch with them a little bit earlier, we can make that happen. Now, a typical working life is we like to shoot for eight to 10 years of, of working for these service dogs. 
that's dependent on a variety of different factors. So keeping the dog at a nice, healthy weight, I would say, is the number one thing to be able to promote the longevity of a dog's working life. So you add five or 10 extra pounds above their ideal weight, you are drastically reducing the longevity because that's, a, that's five or extra 10 pounds of their, on their hips, elbows, joints. So we work with these individuals about how to keep their dog healthy, fit, and continuing to work real nice. Now, when a dog retires, we have a variety of different ways we can make sure the dog has a, a very enjoyable and successful life after work. So most of the time, I'd say about 98% of the time, the families adopt the dog as a pet. It no longer goes into serv uh, public places for that service work, and it gets to just live out its life of luxury at home. It gets spoiled, all of the good stuff. Now, there are very few opportunities where maybe that individual or family can't logistically or financially be able to accommodate uh, two dogs if they're bringing another service dog into the, the family. And in that situation, they can either adopt the dog out to a close friend or family member to stay in touch with that dog's life, or we have a lot of individuals who are looking for ex-retired service dogs or service dogs in training that don't make it as a service dog. So we'll find a great loving home for that dog as well. But like I said, 98% of the time they stay with the family because they've played such an important life during that eight to 10 years that it's going to be very hard for them to give up. So tell us a little bit about the, the numbers. Since you've been uh, up here north of Sedalia, the number of animals you've ran through the program, the backlog for uh, animals, what are you dealing with? Absolutely. So since the inception of our organization, we have made 133 placements. Now, typically you look at probably about a 55 to 60% of those being veterans and then about 45 to 40% of them being autism. And like we said, that's all dependent on the dog's personalities. Now, our program has the capacity to have 140 dogs in our program from eight weeks to two years of age at any given point between both of our facilities. Our organization has done a fantastic job at setting this up so it's one organization but two facilities. So if I have a dog that's a better suit for a Missouri veteran that's residing up in Iowa right now, we'll transport that dog down here to make the best fit. So I told you we have 133 placements. We have 140 dogs that can go through our training program at any point in time. Our success rate is about 40%. 40% of the dogs that come through our training program actually make it as a service dog because we hold that high of a standard for medical, temperamental, and behavioral standards before they can make a placement. Is there any place in particular that those dogs will go to, the ones that don't uh, make the grade, I guess you could say, that where you had different organizations that you would say, okay, and then you can go ahead and, and uh, move this, this animal to another location? Absolutely, yes. So I'm not sure if you guys saw on the Democrat recently, but there is a big spread on Kaya the police dog here in Sedalia. Kaya was a dog that didn't make it through our program. What she displayed is she does really great in one environment, but going from restaurant to church to work to school, all those different environments was just a little bit too much for her. So the dogs that don't make it in our program, we identify what their strengths are and what could be a great purpose for them, whether it's doing therapeutic roles like Kaya does. We've also had dogs, when I mentioned prey drive or ball drive, there's other nonprofits out there that are looking specifically for dogs like that. So we partner with the Search and Rescue Foundation that's out in California, and I've sent dogs out there to be trained for search and rescue work to get placed with first responders at no cost. So we look and be able to make sure, as the organization, we want to ensure that we are the best 
stewards of these dogs. So we want to make sure we put them in a position to be successful, regardless if they make it as a service dog. And some of our dogs that don't make it go on to just be great pet dogs. There's a lot of families who are looking for a dog at home that has been well-trained, and they don't have to go through the puppy stage as a family. They, it's, they already have a dog that's gone through that and house training, crate trained at that point. So, You know, anything that we do in, in, in the way of work requires dollars. And you all are obviously doing some tremendous work. It takes tremendous time and effort. What's the source of your funding? Everything that we do to continue our mission is based off the generosity of grants, donations, and fundraisers. We are about 40% grant-based, and we're about 60% general donations and fundraising-based. And we operate on a $2.2 million budget, so there is always constant need. And I put, and our organization has, in everyone's job description, the important clause that everyone has a fundraising component within the organization. Not necessarily to say everyone's going out and stewarding donors, but everyone's going out and they are representing the organization. So make sure that you go out there when you're handling a dog out in a public restaurant, that you're always putting the best foot for the organization forward. Because every one of those situations, every one of those interactions helps us be able to do our mission without charging our clients. Tell us a little bit about your uh, team. I mean, it obviously takes a group of special people to do this. Absolutely. The one thing that is a common undercurrent for all of our team members is the passion for the mission. Everyone has came to the Retrieving Freedom for a variety of different loves, whether it's the dogs, whether it's the veteran side, whether it's the autism side, but you see them wholeheartedly just grasp our mission. Our trainers are phenomenal. And what I mean by that is this is more than just going to an obedience dog training class out in the general public with your pet dog. I need to have someone that has the ability to look at an individual with a disability, understand or empathize with that individual to say, here's the limitations within their life, and here's the way that this dog can increase their independence. That takes a very specific skill. And it takes a very specific ability to gain the trust of those individuals. So our trainers do a phenomenal job connecting with our dogs and then ultimately connecting with our clients to be able to make the best match for them. Everything from our trainers to our administrators all the way down to our kennel technicians. These are individuals that are working in our kennel environment, making sure it's nice and clean and biosecure for our dogs so that they can stay healthy. But you just see how much they love these dogs. You see how much, how happy they get when they come into work because they get to spend extra time out in the airing yards or the play yards to be able to throw a ball with some of these dogs. And these are individuals. So as a service dog provider, we, our dogs don't take holidays. Our dogs don't take weekends. We offset a little bit of that by trying to recruit weekend fosters. So these are individuals who take our stage three dogs over the weekend when our trainers aren't there working with the dogs. So getting them out into public, getting them into church. But there's some dogs that may need to stay at the facility over the weekend. So these are individuals that work on weekends and holidays, all because they have such a passion for our mission. Kyle, uh, Bo, and Ron and I have had the opportunity to interview uh, a lot of individuals that are very well connected and leaders of local non-for-profit organizations just like Retrieving 
freedom is. We hear the same message from all of them is that this is such a giving community. And it really, uh, I'm thinking, because uh, well, when I went out there for the ribbon cutting, that this all began with the Haydens. And if it wasn't for their donation of 22, 23 acres out there north and east of, uh, of Sedalia, this might not have happened. So, you know, an appreciation to them. And how important is that whole concept of the community support in your organization? Absolutely. So before we even broke ground here in Sedalia, the Haydens have been a major supporter of our mission. They saw the impact of our mission, and they're wondering, how can I be able to provide some of these Missouri veterans, these Missouri families? Now, we don't exclude individuals outside of our state, so we have people traveling right here to Sedalia specifically to get trained in place with our service dogs. Mm -hmm. But we love to focus on our local families and our local veterans first. Now, when we started to evaluate where are we going to build our national headquarters, obviously we want it centrally located within the United States. There's also a couple of very specific parts to uh, where our headquarters is located that make it so successful for our operations. We're working with a population of high anxiety, high stress. You're absolutely correct. Sedalia is a very philanthropic, very generous community. Whether it is their time, treasures, or talents, they love to give. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to establish a facility in a place that is peaceful, that is welcoming. So if you've not had the opportunity to see our facility on the north side of town, I greatly encourage you to come out and take a tour. But what you'll notice is it's relaxing. So two populations have a high level, high anxiety. They can come out there and they can be successful rather than being in the middle of a major city, a major busy city, and increasing that level of anxiety and level of, of just their social isolation. Now, what is also fantastic is service dog work requires us to be in public settings. We need to be able to train in a busy grocery store. So we are outside of town enough that it's nice and peaceful, but we're close enough that I can get dogs into town and have a successful training program. We're visiting with Kyle with Retrieving Freedom on Let's Talk on News Talk 1050 KSIS. And Kyle, we know there's a, a lot of money that's involved when, when uh, this was built, a lot of things going on behind the scenes that people don't know about. I think you've got some information for us to, to kind of let us know a little bit more about what happens with Retrieving Freedom. Absolutely. So when we broke ground back in 2019, not only did the Hayden family give a, a major generous gift for those gorgeous 22 acres that are out there, but they also have been financial contributors to the organization since before we even broke ground. So they continue to be able to support us with those treasures. And that's something that you can't put a value towards. You could put dollars and cents towards it, but to really be able to see the impact that this has for our Sedalia community, for our Missouri community, is invaluable, really. And there's other supporters that helped us with the build for this facility. So Purina is one of our major supporters as well. But the amazing thing about our organization is it really does have a massive local community support, whether it's our volunteers, whether it's our fosters, or whether it's our generous donors. We see a lot of local businesses. We see a lot of local individuals. The Haydens are just one perfect example of this, but individuals that really took our organization under their wing because they see how much of a benefit this, this provides our local families and veterans. I have one question for you. You have a dog that goes through the program so many months into the program so many years do they need almost like a a, a vehicle a tune-up every fifty thousand miles you need a tune-up or something to do they get off track sometimes to where they need to go ahead and come back through to revisit 
Absolutely. So when I talk about that yearly follow-up cadence that we do, that's to ensure that that yearly tune-up, that 50,000 mile tune-up is being able to happen. And if there's anything that arises outside of that calendar schedule, then we will be able to meet with that individual. And they have our contact information at any point. So we help them through everything big and small. So once again, if you have anyone that would like to make a donation to Retrieving Freedom, I believe you said it was retrievingfreedom.org is the website, Ron, you were talking about. And of course, do they need a call ahead of time to come out to come out and visit or just come out and uh, to the location northeast of town off of H Highway, I believe it is, and check things out? Absolutely. So we are on the north side of town off of Tangle Nook. Mm-hmm. I always say the two ways or the three ways you can give our support is time, treasure, and talents. So time, being a volunteer, come out and help during our volunteer days, whether it's local, little, just little odd jobs around our facility, to playing, exercising, and bathing with our dogs. Sorry, bathing our dogs. You don't have to bathe with our dogs. I was going to say, my wife, <laughs> my wife, I don't know if she would agree with me going out there for that, but that's all right. The talents, become one of our fosters. See the benefit it takes to pour your love, your heart into this dog and how much of an impact it has with an individual later on down the line. And the last is is treasures. Help us be able to make sure that we can continue our mission by not putting any of this onto our clients. That's all the time we have this morning. Thank you for listening to Let's Talk. Join Ron Tolner, John Meehan, and myself, Bo Matthews, every Saturday at 10 a.m. right here on News Talk 1050 KSIS.